E-A-B-L-E-S. Ebels. Remember that name because if you suffer from chronic joint and muscle pain like me, then Ebels Broad Spectrum CBD Oil is your answer to your prayers. The Ebels story began with the search for something natural to help manage chronic migraines. But Ebels helps more than just migraines. From managing chronic pain, anxiety, depression, and more, Ebels is truly a game changer in the natural alternatives to big pharma drugs. And yours truly, Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show, can indeed vouch for the quality of Ebels. Having a herniated disc in my back, whew, coupled with years of sports injuries, I was struggling to find something, anything to help manage my pain. That is until Ebels. With the best quality product and customer service in the industry, Ebels Broad Spectrum CBD Oil and Ebels Freeze Gel easily stand above all the competition. And right now, Ebels is offering a special discount to all members of the Brian Nichols Show audience on all orders. All you have to do is head to Ebels.com and use promo code TB. NS, the Brian Nichols Show, right? TBNS at checkout. That's it. Discount applied. Again, the code is TBNS at checkout to start managing your pain today with the highest quality CBD on the market. One more time, that is code TBNS at checkout. And now, on to the show. Can I pause for a second and just note that uh, we got Brian on here who's getting uh, Congressman Massey on, and our typical lineup includes like homeless people that believe in Bigfoot. <laughs> Welcome to the Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about. At the Brian Nichols Show, our goal is to leave the audience educated, enlightened, and informed. And now your host, Brian Nichols. Happy Monday, folks. Brian Nichols here on the Brian Nichols Show. All right, we have an idea. It's uh, it's Biden, right? President Biden. Strapping. It's gonna be a weird. Uh, it's a weird next four years or next four months, depending on how long he makes it. But also, uh, we do have some things to prepare for. And that is the implications from an economic standpoint. What would a Biden presidency yield? Now, I'm gonna confess. This interview with our friend Max Golker. Noted economist and formerly of AIER uh, was recorded before the election, so it was kind of you know setting the stage. What would the difference be between Biden and Trump from an economic perspective? Also looking at the lockdowns, but hey, we get much deeper. We talk about specifics from a policy perspective, and as always, it's great to have Max Golker returning here to the Brian Nichols Show. So without further ado, on to the show, Max Golker here on the Brian Nichols Show. Hello, Brian. Um, happy, happy fall to you. Happy almost election day uh, this, uh, in this strange climate we find ourselves in. Happy almost election day indeed to you, Max, because I am happy that it's almost over, even though I know oh in goodness. the heart of hearts, it's not. It's not over. This right. is just the beginning. It, it literally feels like in Star Wars where he goes, it's, this is just the beginning, and he jumps away. Like, that's exactly what I feel like right now, because you know for a fact, like, this is Dooku going into the end of Attack of the Clones. Like, it's it's going to happen. You know something bad. Like, you know Vader's turning soon. You just don't know where in the movie next it's going to happen. And that's kind of what right. I feel like right now. Like, you right. know and, and, and there's I something. I was going to say, Brian, you know, when you said it's almost over, define it. Because, in a way, it, the next week and a half or something might be crazy. But but after that, um, we're, we're, we're still left in the same yep. place. Or yeah. The same questions so yeah. um it's gonna be it's fascinating but um you know more intense and tense a time politically i think than i've ever seen in my life oh for sure i mean i'm living you know here in in philadelphia and you can just feel yeah. the air the air around you it just it just feels tense and you 
you can't help but kind of feel helpless in some respects because like there's nothing that you can do on a personal level it feels like to make the change because everybody seems to be so focused on this national spotlight right and right. i i i want to encourage people to get more involved more educated yeah. on their local politics because quite frankly that's going to have more of an impact on their daily lives but we've been so kind of i don't say brainwashed but you know we've been told time and again that these presidential elections, these are kind of like our Super Bowls when it comes to the electoral process in America. And everybody treats it like that. So you end up with two teams, basically, who they put all their energy, all their time, all their efforts, and all their money into two, in many cases, terrible candidates. And and then America as a whole is, is forced to mm-hmm. select between these two really bad candidates, someone who is the least bad per democracy, 50 plus 1% majority, and then the other side of the, the country has to deal with that ramification. Well, not even the side. The other quarter of the country has to deal with that ramification, but the other half of the people in America who don't even vote um, or aren't eligible to vote have to just sit there with their hands underneath their, their ass and have to watch everything happen from the sidelines instead of getting involved. So I, um, exactly. I, I'm, I guess I want to see people actually get more involved, but also more educated and heck, that's where you come in, Max, because you're an economist, and this is where you know your expertise comes into play, focusing on the actual implications from an economic standpoint of these various policies, positions that our politicians and elected officials take. So right now, we're recording here in the middle of October, or the end of October, as we approach the election, and we are still in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, and we're just you know six, seven months or so shy from the original lockdowns mid-March of 2020. And, you know, right. I did an episode back in uh, at the end of March, beginning of April with Dan Mitchell um, and, you know, Dan, economist from the Heritage Foundation. And we discussed, right. you know, the economic implications of these lockdowns. And I, I look at right now, we have millions of folks unemployed. You have yep. uh, the numbers of unemployment continuing to rise. And we just saw today as we're recording, uh, the Dow just dropped, I think it was close to 700 points. So we're seeing an uptick in cases. And I'm I'm very apprehensive because I would not be surprised in the slightest that we see some of these politicians go and start to implement a lot of these lockdowns back into place, which I think will really have a very long lasting economic implication, right? So let's talk about this. From where we were yeah. in March to what kind of like the, mm-hmm. the, the thought was, you know, 15 days to, to flatten the curve. Um, you know, this is this is only temporary. You, you know, people who were going out trying to get get haircuts. That was the the argument from from some uh, you know pro lockdown folks. Versus fast forward where we are now, we kind of have a better idea of what's happening with COVID. Where there's an 80 percent um you know recovery rate if you go to the hospital with COVID right. versus where you were you know just a short seven months ago. So it seems like we're starting to figure this thing out, Max. Let's kind of though discuss the economic standpoints of this. What has been the fallout, I guess, from the COVID-19 lockdowns themselves? Let's not dig into like necessarily the, the health implications or the, the unintended consequences in that respect, right. but focusing on your average individual, you know, what has been, number one, the overall, I guess, impact of COVID, but number two, based on where we are now, what's kind of the thought on where we're going to be going as we go forward into the end of this right. year in 2021? Sure. So, um, you know, the, First of all, I want to reiterate that that it, it is very hard to trade off the sort of health and the, the, the dollars and cents in all of this. That doesn't mean we're absolved from doing it because modern medicine sort of forces us to, to put those things in the same realm. But let's just talk about the economics of it for now, like you said. Um, this is 
an extremely unique, interesting, vexing almost sort of time for macroeconomics. Macroeconomics is not usually my specialty, but the sort of, um, you know, the recession, inflation, GDP um, type of things. Because what we saw in the spring was at least, uh, you know, by a textbook definition, a massive recession, right? We saw output like fall off a cliff. Um, at the same time, is that the same thing that a normal, quote unquote normal, as though there is a normal recession, but is that the same thing as a dot-com bubble bursting or a, um, you know, finance, subprime financial crisis? Or is this something different? Is this just a government-ordered work stoppage or sort of alternatively in parallel, a work stoppage that, that people are deciding to, to have because of this, um, because of this pandemic. Um, to me, um, I think that in terms of social distancing and, and sort of pulling those levers and that type of thing, I am a, and I haven't heard this put out there very much, but I'm much more a fan of the, um, sort of asking individuals to go out less than I am forcibly closing businesses. Um, and here's why. Because the government can forcibly close a business and it can enforce it with, you know, basically a hundred, you know, if, if the business opens, you can arrest the shopkeeper or something like that. Um, in terms of the lockdowns as they relate to individuals, I've at times almost had trouble and this is not to endorse any of these policies, but call them lockdowns because at the same time, it's always been understood you're going to leave your house for, you know, your most important activities. And that sort of leaves some power with individuals who, you know, have the information on the ground, the local knowledge that we always talk about and love so dearly. Um, that's going to allow them to prioritize and, and, you know, pick the activities outside that they do. Whereas um, when businesses got closed and then when some states in particular got kind of cute about, oh, here's phase one and you're going to open for this many hours and then this kind of business is going to open for that many hours, right? Well, you know, that's not how a sort of local ecosystem, if you want to call it that, of local businesses works, right? They need each other. And so I think um, at this point, going forward, the real way that these lockdowns are going to be lifted, that these shelter-in-place orders, all of these things are going to be at the individual level. And it's going to happen robustly. It's going to be you and me and everybody else on any political or whatever side, getting tired of or saying, well, you know, this this doesn't seem like quite as much of an unknown commodity anymore. Um, let me go out a little more this week. Or let me go out a little less this week. Or, um, you know, here are the precautions that I'm going to take or not take. Or, oh, I'm getting a little tired of wearing a mask. It starts coming off a little bit. And over time, we're all communicating with each other when we're doing that. Whereas when we focus, I think that some people who are, you know, kind of correctly opposing the lockdowns are getting a little bit um, too fixated on sort of grand policy changes. 
And the thing is, to, to, to a large extent, people may kind of have their ideas about COVID-19, whether they're right or wrong right now, and changing people's minds on a grand scale may be a lot harder than letting people sort of poke out of the hole and look around a little bit um, and, and, you know, letting things happen that way. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. The the one thing that I was I, I guess I'll push back a little bit right is the, yeah. the when you focus on the lockdowns you have from top down this kind of arbitrary decision making process and and I will I will give credit where right. credits due Trump had one hundred percent opportunity to take this fascistic approach to you know iron fist lockdowns yeah. from top down and he didn't and uh-huh. like if you're a lefty. And I'm I'm using lefty yeah. very general because I know people get mad at me when I use the term lefty. I'm yeah. saying lefty by the like the, the the generalization, the stereotype, right? And you call mm-hmm. Trump a fascist, but then in the next tweet are upset that he <laughs> didn't order a nationwide lockdown. I please right. DM me your address because I will I will go ahead and send you a mirror because this is one of the most you know large cognitive distances distances I've seen in folks in a long time from. On the left, and I hear the argument you're making, Max, and saying let the person, let the individual make that decision. And I think we're actually, we're, I mean, heck, I'm walk outside right now in Philadelphia. I'm going to tell you right now that I'm going to see at least half people wearing masks, half not if they're you know with a, a group of friends, like because they know their risk. They're making they're they're making calculated risks, which we do on a daily exactly. basis. But then you have, I would say, a candidate like a Joe Biden or a, a Kamala Harris, and. I don't mm-hmm. be- I don't believe it would be at all within their res- restraint to say, ah, you know what? Heck with it. Nationwide lockdown mm-hmm. for a couple of months. Why not? Let's let's nip this in the bud. And and I right. I think we have to at the very least acknowledge that that's a very real concern, especially yeah. with your average person who lost uh, either you know a business mm-hmm. or they lost their job they lost their income mm-hmm. as a direct result of said lockdowns what say you right well I, I i think a really important thing you're hitting on there is that um a lot of the impact and it's a negative impact that that uh, the, the the executive of our nation can have um on this is imposing more lockdowns is 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 which i think you and i agree we're pretty certain it's negative. Um, I think that in terms of leadership from a president at this point, it may be a little bit more on the margin and on the moral authority side. And I, I was, I was thinking about this this afternoon. Um, you know, I, I wish that there was the possibility of a president who had both the political wherewithal and the moral authority to do one of two things in two situations, you know, because winter's coming and um, people are going to be inside more and you're probably going to see the numbers go up. Um, And if it's, you know, a a broadly expected amount, you know, I wish there was a president with the political authority and the moral wherewithal to say, um, hey, one foot in front of the other, like we're not making any changes here. Like, yes, the numbers are going to go up. Yes, that's very painful. Um, but, you know, let's, 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 you know, keep our eye on the ball. Sounds like such a, such a. Hey, Max. Bad metaphor. Yeah. So I, I will say one thing, and it's actually funny you say that. 
I mean, more or less, I mean, Mark Meadows kind of admitted that, though, this past week. Um, So he was actually, yeah. I forget what show he was on, but he was like, more or less, like, listen, we're not going to contain this thing. This is a virus. Like, yeah. it's it's the flu. It, it, it's not the flu, but it's it's a flu. And, like, you, you can't stop a virus. You can do your best to mitigate, but, like, there comes a point where, you know, you have to focus on, okay, well, how do you deal with this? And, and I think that's been the main point of the Trump administration is they're focusing more on, yeah. well, listen, we have, you know, we, we know remdesivir, for example, that's been approved by the FDA because the mm-hmm. FDA has to approve all the magical drugs, but that's been approved as a go-to, um, at the very least, not a, a cure, but a therapeutic to help people. I mean, again, mm-hmm. we've seen if you had COVID in March versus where you are today, you have an 80% more chance of, of making it out of the, uh, the hospital alive. And we're seeing case numbers skyrocket, however, big, however, there. The, the death toll seems yeah. to be kind of staying at that that rate, yeah. that, that, that very consistent. Yeah, so I was, I was going to say that the Trump administration, at least recently, has been taking um, the, the, sort of that tack. Mm. Um, I would say at the same time, and this is just facts on the ground, this is whether Trump derangement syndrome or he's kind of earned it, you know, do you expect 50 percent of the country to listen to him? Um, and you know, do, you, do you expect him to take the right or kind of consistent tone in doing that or to do something sort of weird and impulsive or be dismissive of it or that kind of thing? And on the flip side, if you accept that there's some uncertainty in all of this, um, you know, it, it, could we have a president who could credibly say to the whole populace, hey, go out a little less this week? Right. Which is how I think this should have been done um, to begin with. Instead of closing the businesses, was sort of saying to people, you know, here here's a guide to going out 20 percent as much in, in September. I'm not or in, in, in the spring. I'm not saying that that's a perfect solution, but I'm saying I think it would have preserved a lot more economic activity. I don't think we and this is not a fault of necessarily only this is a fault of both the two men running. <laughs> and the media, and the electorate, and the way we think of this as a Super Bowl, the way you started out with, I don't see most of the country listening to any specific president, yeah. <laughs> whoever that is. Um, I agree. In turn, and, and, and mostly, again, that's okay, as long as we don't start throwing out a million more sort of uh, obstacles to getting through this and we focus on equipping and empowering people to make good decisions Mm -hmm. um that's a big ask (laughs) you know the way the way things are right now um you know so i I do see the risk of um like the more lockdowns um i think it's very you know, I, I'm, I'm going to resist jumping down the rabbit hole of reading Joe Biden tea leaves of sort of who he even is. Um, I don't. I don't think Joe point. Biden knows who he is, Max. <laughs> well, I know, and it, 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 it's um, you know, it, 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 it's very strange times, and I'm not. And, and, and yes, I think that that is sort of the downside risk there. Um, with Trump, I just think it's uncertainty. Do I know that he wouldn't one day say, yeah, everybody sit down? Um, who knows? Probably oh, yeah. not at this point. But, um, you know, the, the stranger things have happened in the presidency of well, Donald Trump. Well, I was going to say, Max, one of the things that has not been talked about in conservative yeah. media at all, and yeah. I'm like, are you kidding me? During the debate, 
What did he say that like got every? Actually, you know who did talk about it? my good buddy Brad Palumbo over at Fee? He wrote about this. Nice. Was that good. Trump good mentioned about putting in a nationwide minimum wage? And he said, "Well, second term, yeah, I consider it." I'm like, "Time out!" He is he is saying the quiet part out loud. Like he is he is basically doing the Obama to uh, Kislyak tell Putin that once I am. You know, my election's done. I'll have a little more flexibility. Right. Like that's basically what Trump just said, as it pertains to a more left-looking uh, approach at economics, a more right. Keynesian approach. Well, at I, economics. I think it's 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 always you always end up losing whenever you bet on Trump having a philosophy <laughs> other For than sure. whatever um, whatever active imagined leadership next sort of contributes to the story of Donald Trump, the great president. Um, in, in his mind, it's almost like that's kind of the next philosophy um at the same time you know you know we're, we're, we're gravitating towards being more and less critical of trump here i'll say this um maybe before we get into some of the other economic issues i watched the first debate and my bad. first reaction my like emotional reaction was are you kidding me that this is a choice between these two people being put in front of me mm -hmm. and as you kind of hinted in your opening this is like most of the country is taking it at face value. They're like, oh, we gotta make sure we, you know, whichever one it is. Um, my more intellectual reaction when I forced myself to watch most of it was think about eight years ago, Obama and Romney, right? Now, you might hate Obama, love Romney, vice versa. These were two generally kind of competent guys who had like a and I'm not even saying this is a good thing in terms of like very long run change, but like they seem to have a common idea of like what they were doing yeah, and what they were supposed to do and what the questions are. This seemed like, and I don't think it's just um, the two people. I think, I think the two people who have come out of this um, problematic as they are, are more emblematic of this underlying kind of intellectual crisis that's going on on both the left and the right which is a crisis of collectivism, I'll say, which is a crisis of, as president, I'm going to do something to solve our problem. But the thing is, our problems in this country are getting worse and worse suited to that yep. rather than better and better suited to that. And I think, I think we're, you know, in the middle of kind of realignment and, 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 and scrambling and kind of redefining these parties, I hope, um, <laughs> in ways that will do that. But, but, but you'll see that, question in economic policy is sort of, well, what are you going to do as president? And there really isn't a great answer to that kind of come up again and again. Yeah, well, and you talk about what are these parties, like this redefining of the parties, and one of the things that I, as a former Republican, would look at as something that I would like, what are you doing, is their approach at trade. And, like, I've been yeah. accused of being way too pro-Trump on my show recently because, I'm sorry, I can't talk about objective realities like, hey, yes, Trump's crime bill was better than <laughs> Biden's crime bill. Like, that's mm -hmm. an objective, yes, no, yeah, like, yeah. come on. Um, yeah. So. Here, let's let's be objective again for some of the folks in my yeah. my, my my circle of uh, influence who get a little upset, <laughs> right? Let's talk about Trump's trade, which has been horrendous. And and you know, one of the, the best um the best responses I saw from all people was uh Cenk Yuger from uh the the uh Turks. What the heck is it called? The yeah. Young Turks, there we go. Um and he basically was like, Yo, you don't get it yet, Trump. When you tax 
tariffs, or you put tariffs on incoming uh, imported goods, it's not a tax on China. It's a tax on the American people. And Trump right. doesn't get that. Now, I will put a big however again out there. I hear my friends yeah. on the right, and they say, but Brian, he's using these tariffs as a means to beat down the big bad China, who they make sure they remind me every single time now, gave us this godforsaken coronavirus, and that... This right. it, it, he yeah. needs to he needs to punish them, but help help me out here, Max. Help my friends yeah, on the right yeah. see where they're they're missing well, a little bit. Well, I'm I'm first of all gonna I'm I'm gonna um I'm gonna finish the job on Trump for you, and then I'm gonna then I'm gonna turn the mirror towards Joe Biden and um, not be very happy with him on this issue either. Um, so um, my old colleague Peter Earl and I back at AIER uh, did a bunch of work on Trump's uh, trade policy, and uh, the, the, what what um, was said about the tax on American people. Basically, uh, you can quibble about amounts, exact amounts, but in terms of overall magnitude, like the amount Trump was taking in in taxes from the American people from tariffs was enough to cancel out, I think it was like two-thirds of his corporate and, 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 and personal income tax cuts that he had done the year before, right? So if you think those tax cuts were good, then you have to deal with these tax increases that, um, that you know, largely cancel them out. Um, this is one of those things, this is one of those issues where almost all economists will agree that more free trade around the globe is better. Um, but it's, you know, a question where depressingly good economics is kind of bad politics. Um, at least that's the evidence we see in front of us because this, you know, this to me is economically the ball that Trump left on a tee for an opposing candidate. This should be the easy one. And if you go and you look at Joe Biden's economic plans, the language is 90%, you know, anti-China, um, trying to look tough. Um, you know, it basically, it's funny because it mirrors the military-type um, debates that we that we had 20 years ago, or a little less. Biden is saying, well, don't have tariffs unilaterally. Get a coalition yeah. of countries that have tariffs. Yeah, it's talking point from 2004 uh, from the Republicans. So, so it's great. Restraining even more global trade. Thank you, Joe. Um and for some people, just don't. Um, you, this is. I, I, I mean, we understand why this is to a large extent. Um, the benefits of free trade are um, dispersed, are hard to see, right? Are kind of you know out there in the economy. Um, but oftentimes, the um, anecdotal story about you know the the, the factory that moved to China or Mexico or something like that is much easier to see and pinpoint. And it's very easy for politicians to take a nationalistic kind of tack on this. And it's sort of a free tax, not a free tax, but an almost free tax for them because people don't quite see it as a tax, even though they should. Um, so, you know, to me, this just shows a classic example where neither party here really cares about free markets. Um, where uh, where one of them is sort of Trump steering us in a nationalistic direction, and the other one, and and the Democratic response is sort of, ooh, we don't want to like, you know, we don't want to look soft there. Instead of like, idiot, you're costing, you know, maybe hundreds of billions of dollars of right. you know GDP. 
Um, and um, so, you know, that's a place where, as libertarians, whether you know wh wh whether small L or big L, whether whether philosophically or you know involved in some political organization or something, we have to find ways to um, do a better job of showing people that they benefit. Yep. Um, yep. From from these things. And a lot of times economists can get very dismissive, especially theoretically about, oh, we can find ways to compensate people who lose their jobs and stuff like that. But like in a political real, real world, that doesn't really happen nope. um, in, in ways we'd like it to. And so we have to be real about that. We have to be real about the people it's hurting and we have to be real about how um, it's helping too. But, you know, that... It, it, it's things like that that just that just make me lose, you know, all. Well, I, I've already lost most of my faith in a president solving most of our problems. I think you and I both have. That's yeah. why we're here. Yep. But, um, but you know that that to me is disappointing to see. And free, you know, Joe Biden was not some, you know, ultra leftist Sanders type. Um, his whole career in terms of markets. And, you know, Joe Biden's supposed to be part of this, you know, feared neoliberal consensus. Right? <laughs> You're, it's all about globalization and free trade. It's like, where's a good neoliberal when you need one? Um, you know, where, it, that's usually used, especially on the left, as a pejorative term. Yeah. But, um, but it, so uh, that really disappointed me. Um, and that was so that was one economic issue that kind of jumped out. And I'm getting more and more disen, uh, disenfranchised. Well, I guess I am disenfranchised, but I'm also disheartened too. Disenchanted. Dis disenchantedly disenfranchised and disheartened because yes. um, I know yes. for a fact that the candidate I'm supporting, the candidate you're supporting, Dr. Joy Jorgensen, yep. that she's not going to win. We, 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 we <laughs> we're the meme, the <laughs> libertarians. We know our mm -hmm. candidate's not going to win. Yes. Like we know, we, we acknowledge 100%. It's not going to happen. And then you look to Trump versus Biden, and at the very least, one party used to pretend that they were a free market party. I mean, I remember back, I'm old enough right. to remember their Max back in 2010, way back when, when you had folks like, right. you know, Rand Paul, Thomas Massey, Justin Amash, Mike Lee, Ted Cruz, heck, mm -hmm. even folks like Marco Rubio and Tom Cotton, they are running on this big Tea Party wave, which was entirely based on, basically, it was, you know, conservatarian-ish approach to uh, uh, economics and approach to governance. And we completely dropped the ball because, well, you, of course you have grifters who will you know use the movements and then they'll climb the ranks and then they poison the terms. And that was one thing back in 2015 that I actually said about Trump I was nervous about was that he was going to yeah. hurt the terms about free markets and, and capitalism because he himself is just an icky person. And, and with that, there's going to be such an emotional response, be it positive or negative towards anything the guy says. And I was like, I don't know if I really want this guy to be the face of the Republican party, the party, which is supposed to be the party of free markets. And you know, heck I, Trump's still giving lip service to the free markets on the debate stage when his policies are doing yeah. the exact opposite behind the scenes. And it's like, well, um, you know, Trump's, what are we going to do? Yeah, <laughs> Trump's view of, of markets is much more a masters of the universe kind of, you know, big man in the boardroom kind of a version of free markets, which I think is is sort of beside the point or kind of secondary at best um, in, in it, 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 its importance to just all of us. Um, I think that 
you know, I, I, I had, um, I'm just, yeah. So, so let me, let me ask you about that with the tea party and with, um, and, and with those guys, I'm, just because I'm curious here. So I'll ask you a question. Why is it that that economic libertarianism it's, I don't know if it's appealing to, but somehow ends up combining with this kind of right populist anger. Um, I think it's more related to it's it. There's an there's a fundamental agreement on liberty, mm-hmm. right? And, and like this idea yeah. of, of personal autonomy that your average right. person, I think, on the right can empathize with. And I say that as someone who came right. from the right, right? There's right, there's right, right. if you have your your standard traditional conservative Republican person, right? They base a lot of their political beliefs, yes, on like the Ronald Reagan conservatism, but also on Christian fundamental beliefs, which at their core require personal responsibility, um, but also discuss the ideas of free will and and autonomy. God, so in in the Bible, I say this as a a proud PK, Prasser's Mm kid, um, that Mm -hmm. God gives each individual person personal will free will autonomy to make right. their decisions and that's part of the human experience per god's will so with that mm-hmm. it, it directly relates to these ideas that are at the fundamental basics of libertarianism being property rights and non-aggression it, it really they 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 don't necessarily uh match you know word for word the, the, the teachings of the Bible, but they really right. do closely yeah. rhyme, right? So with right. that being said, there is a natural step to, to say what you put forth in effort and what in, in not just effort, but also in perceived value, right. that that in turn should be something that you as a person gets in return, right? And, right. and I think when you look at the free market, the free market, it yields what that value would be so when you start to put in these arbitrary um you know edicts from government it then makes it so you as the person who is looking to get the most out of what you're doing or you're producing you no longer Mm -hmm. are able to do that therefore you're no longer able to really get you know the the full experience if you will of you know you're you getting what you produce or or what you should have earned and i think that's why when you have your average person on the right they do have this you know this sentiment towards mm-hmm. this this free market approach however again then you take people like trump who they will they'll yeah. pay lip service to free market principles but they'll, mm-hmm. they'll they'll sneak in these little you know little dashes of nationalism or populism that do not jive with free market ideals whatsoever and it starts to pollute the well and after a few of these drips start to go in and go in the the messaging is completely different than what it was at the onset yeah. so i think that's why yeah. we've seen you know this very easy you know slippery slope which I, I say of all the, the logical fallacies, that's the one I, I do have the most problem with because slippery slopes technically yeah. are logical fallacies, but they're definitely legit because when you look in 2010, that was the Tea Party approach. It was, you know, we were taxed enough already. That was the Tea Party right. expression. And that's why it, it started out with Obama in 2009 with the, the so, uh, mm-hmm. Affordable Care Act. And that was the, the real precipice. And yet... Then you, I, I mentioned the folks like the Marco Rubio, like the Ted Cruz, like right. the Tom Cotton. Uh, Ted Cruz, he's a little more constitutionally, but he's still a little more eh, in some of the, the populist nationalist rhetoric. But 
Tom Cotton taking you know the the narrative of right. the Tea Party and then applying his you know pro uh, militaristic approach in in spending Marco Rubio the same right. exact way. I mean that's well, I think that's where, where that's where I think things get muddy and and where they have in that sort of mix and that collaboration in the last decade or so is authority. Is that mm, yes? Know, why do you want a state with less authority? Well, I want a state with less authority because I don't want people to have authority over people, and I think people flourish when they get back what they put in, and they know who to collaborate with and cooperate with, and and be kind to around them and their neighbors, and and all of that. I got I get the sense from some of that crowd at times that it's more I don't want the state to have as much authority because I want to be the authority because I am you know a traditional male you know patriarch of this that 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 you know I should be the one to have authority and but you but you you do nicely then see Trump kind of sift those two groups out mm, a little mm-hmm, yeah well, um, have you have you the chance to watch the new Borat yet by chance. No. no. Okay. I, I gave it a solid meh. It was it was very meh. But there's one part in the movie where uh, he yeah. goes and he lives with I think they're three percenters. I, I I could be wrong. Um, but they're they're very you know into like QAnon conspiracy theories yeah, and such. Yeah, yeah. But and there's one underlying theme from Borat that people miss. I think. Yeah. And the theme that I caught was that despite all these people that he was trying to make look stupid and make them look like bad people for their beliefs they all were so incredibly nice to him and these three percenters he lived with them for five days and and like he played the character of borat for five days these guys had no idea and yet they they, like they were going out of their way to help him and like i think that was by by his last movie i think it was bruno that was kind (laughs) of how i felt you know like like it was starting to um, but let's uh, we 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 we've hammered on Trump for a while, and I know I make you do that a lot. Um, but, but let's we we can also um, you know it, look to the Democrats and the left, and the fact that you know Joe Biden was the person who came out of this nomination mm. process yep. when um, you know okay, so there were two Democratic and there was one Democratic candidate, Bernie Sanders, who I'd say I was highly concerned about his did um, episodes on policies. episodes about him yes exactly there was another uh democratic candidate elizabeth warren who i would say i was doomsday prepper level concerned also about did an episode policy. about her that's a that, that, that's that's um exaggeration but i did have a special kind of phobia of kind of the collaboration between government and big business that i saw elizabeth warren kind of envisioning um when I look at what Joe Biden is sort of, well, the, when I look at what Joe Biden is, is, is proposing, we're kind of looking past COVID now. Um, on his site, it's very, again, it's very hard to know who we're dealing with because he certainly is not um, proposing the most radical versions of healthcare reform. Um, you know, uh, the safety net type of stuff that some of these other candidates were. He's certainly moving in that direction. He's certainly been influenced. And, you know, what kind of a role is he going to play potentially in a Biden administration three years from now? We're not 100% sure. Um, I will say that I think that his 
I, I would have friends on the left who would who would disagree with me intractably forever on this, but I think it shows the lack of a democratic mandate from the American people and even the Democratic Party to put in some of those Bernie Sanders style, yep. you know, kind of attempts to top down control that we wound up with Joe Biden. Um, I, I and so while I do have a lot of um, concerns about you know some of those programs taken to an extreme. You know, when I see Joe Biden and then when I see, you know, whatever Congress he's probably going to have to face, you know, I don't expect a lot of radical economic plans in the next four years, no matter the way people are talking right now. I mean, with climate change, you never know. Um, just because people get on this ticking time bomb thing, which is really dangerous. Um, I'm saying to get on the ticking time bomb thing. Um, that was the first thing we ever talked about, right? Yeah, it was show. the Green New Deal, but, right. um, uh, but but at the same time, I don't fear sort of Joe Biden's socialism, um, in, in in a sense. Um, there, if, if if that makes if if that makes sort of any sense, I don't. It, it, it's hard for me to talk about the two candidates because. Neither of them has anything that appeals to me. I find, yeah. um, you know, and, and, and I think I think you've had, you know, you've had that that experience too. Um, I, you know, a, a lot of my friends. I'm not just talking about on the far left, but like center, uh, are very much of the view that we just have to get Trump out of office. That that you know, this is this is a Trump problem, and I want like. You're going to wake up the next morning and the 40 whatever percent of people who voted for Donald Trump and the reasons they had for voting for him are still going to be there. Yes. And vice versa. And I think all of that suggests somehow taking apart, you know, drilling down and figuring out these questions that we're trying to ask on a policy level at a national level, I think are no longer, no, maybe they never were, but certainly now aren't a good fit for that. And, you know, encircling back to COVID too, which is much like, you know, can a president create jobs and control the economy? No, not really. Can a president control COVID? No, not really. Um, but, it, it, you know, it, it, it's just very hard to know. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing is that, you know, January inauguration, three months from now. <laughs> so if you look right three months ago was what, July? Yep. So think about what's happened in the world in terms of COVID and everything else from July until now. And now think about between now and inauguration day. Um, we have some of the most, you know, dense fog of uncertainty, I think, hanging over us economically in terms of what things are going to look like again that i can remember in my lifetime i'm pretty confident to say 
Well, see, the problem is, Max, that you're just assuming that there is going to be, in fact, a 2021, but you're going to be very surprised when December 32nd shows up and 2020 continues, because this has been the year from hell, it feels like. Um, and it just, I mean, that's what better way for it to finish than not finishing at all. Um, and, and speaking of not finishing, unfortunately, we're, we're at the point where we, we do have to get wrapping up, because, oh my goodness, we're at 40 minutes, and folks are going to be like, holy hell, Brian. You we did a terrible job of organizing that in terms of economic issues, but I think it was a fun and insightful conversation. Well, let's so be real. Here, here's what I find in, in my experience, yeah. and there's a little peek behind the curtain for the audience, right, is that when we're doing these kind of conversations on the Brian Nichols show, like, I, and candidly, I don't come into any interview with a set list of questions I'm going to be asking. I mean, what's, what, you know, again, peek behind the curtain, we literally were DMing today, and I said, hey, Max, you want to come to the show? And you're like, yeah, let's do it. And, like, I came into this conversation wanting to genuinely just pick your brain because I I think that's how most people want to approach these issues. They're tired of being yeah. preached to. They're tired of being lectured to. They're tired of, you know, the the here's what you need to know. They they want to hear the nuance. They want to hear context. And the way to, I think to get really into the nuance, to get into the context, is to get outside of this traditional, like, the interviewer asks a question and then the interviewee answers <laughs> the question. Like, when we have the conversation, it gives us the chance to then inject yeah. nuance, inject in that context that's so needed and I think it's very rewarding not only for us as we leave the conversation but it's rewarding to the audience because at the end of the day my whole mission statement for my show beyond just trying to sell liberty is to leave my audience educated enlightened and informed I want my audience to be able to go to work mm -hmm. and feel like they can have not only the conversation at the water cooler but help lead the conversation at the water cooler because they know this stuff so that's what my my entire shtick for this you know the reason for this show even exists mm -hmm. is so we can make these conversations easier to have with real people and yeah. and honestly that's what matters because if to your point if we're not able to take you know these very dense yeah. at times economic conversations and make them relatable yeah. then what are we doing like we're, we're just yeah. we're just having a conversation to be right and and all 14 people who also want to be right will also be right with us and gosh yes. we'll be right amongst our little right selves and what, what are we accomplishing so with that being said you you're doing Man, a lot max the only the only thought I have to say in, in wrapping up, Brian, is that December 32nd would be an incredible name for like a emo punk, either band or album from about 15 or 20 years ago. Um, and, and somebody should really look into that. Uh, especially for 2020. <laughs> and, and here, really quick, let's do this December because 32nd. I want to give you um, the, the last uh, last plug here because you are doing a lot of work right behind the scenes. Um, you know, yes. your economic research has been so vital. I've had you in the show multiple times. We've gone through Bernie Sanders' economic plans, Elizabeth Warren's economic plans. We discussed um, Bernie Sanders when he was on Joe Rogan. Uh, we went through, yes, the Green New Deal. So there's tons of episodes for folks to go ahead and dig into. Um, but yes. with that being said, there's so much work you've been doing, obviously, with your time over at AIAR. So with that being said, folks, where can they go ahead and follow you to uh, stay up to date with all that's yeah. happening in the world of Max Golker? So, um, plenty of, um, my writing can be found, um, with my old employer and, and great for, um, they do a great job of maintaining that site, um, AIER. And so you can, you can just search for my name and AIER. I'll recommend one article that maybe Brian, you can put in the show notes sure. that I wrote a couple of months ago that was called the end of consensus, um, which, which I think, um, the, illustrates this stuff nicely. Um, and then you can find me uh, doing anything from economic analysis to uh, daily sarcasm kind of on Twitter 
at maxg-econ. Um, again, that's Twitter at maxg-econ. And there will be a lot of exciting other stuff to announce soon. Awesome. Max Galker, always a fantastic conversation. I always feel like I leave these conversations. I feel smarter uh, because, my goodness, you always have all the knowledges that you're bringing to the table here at The Brian Nichols Show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Brian. A quick read from our new sponsor, and that is the Expat Money Show. Now, if you are a longtime listener or even a relatively new listener here on The Brian Nichols Show, then you remember our good friend, Mikkel Thorup from the Expat Money Show. What an episode to learn that just because you were born in one country doesn't mean that you have to pay your taxes there forever to do your banking there, to have your investments there, raise your family there, or even have your companies register there, learn there, get your kids educated there, or even live your life there. How about that? You can go ahead and live your life wherever it is you see fit. Because the Expat Money Show, which is hosted by our friend Mikkel Thorup, originally started as a podcast, but has grown to a worldwide community of entrepreneurs who are living international location, independent lifestyles. Mikkel is focused on helping you live an international life by looking at problems through the lens of global solutions. In this day and age, there is no reason you should let borders get in the way of having the best the world has to offer. So, Brian Nichols Show audience, head over to the Expat Money Show today. Give Mikkel a subscribe, a fantastic show, and tell him that Brian Nichols sent you. Alrighty, folks, that's going to wrap up my conversation with economist Max Golker here on the Brian Nichols Show. Thank you, as always, to Max for joining us. Always great insight, and as always, please do me a favor. Make sure you go ahead and support all the great work that Max is doing. Um, I'll make sure I include all the links to his social media in our show notes. But as we head forward into the next part of this week, coming up on Wednesday, returning to the show, Connor Dragotis. Yes, from the, uh, the well, he's, he's from the Fairness Center, but today he's joining us to be discussing his brand new book, Work for Liberty. And then on Friday, Professor Kevin Vallier joins to discuss his new book, Trust in a Polarized Age. Man, we need a lot of trust right here in 2020 as we move forward into 2021. All right, housekeeping, where you can follow me, at B Nichols Liberty, Twitter and Facebook. Well, you can still follow me there. It's quite obvious they're not friendly for libertarians anymore. So I'm going to ask you, if you have not yet, go ahead and support me over on independent media. And that is going to be over on minds.com. And yes, Parlor. Parlor.com. Parlor is going to be blowing up here in the next uh, couple months, folks. So make sure if you have not yet, head over to Parlor. Find me at B Nichols Liberty. Give me a follow, and I'll make sure I give you a follow back as well. Follow back, girl. What up? It's Monday. And, folks, as we go forward, make sure you, if you have not yet, do that five star rating and review because you can get entered as you uh, enter that five star rating and review on Apple Podcasts for the Brian Nichols Show into our amazing Ebulls giveaway. That's right. Ebulls, a fantastic new CBD sponsor here on the Brian Nichols Show. If you enter that five star rating and review, send screenshot of said review to me at Brian at briannicholsshow.com. You'll be entered into that amazing raffle, so make sure you do not miss out there. But guys, with that being said, we have a lot of shows come up here this week to prepare for, so hit that subscribe button. But with that being said, it's Brian Nichols signing off here on The Brian Nichols Show for Economist Max Golker. We'll see you Wednesday. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com.